Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. That's michael at C-O-C-O-R-I-S dot com. Now, let's hear from Mike. Romans chapter 1 teaches that God will judge all men. Yea, that the judgment of God rests on all men. More specifically, it teaches that God has revealed truth about himself through creation but that men have not only rejected that revelation of God in creation, they have actually suppressed the truth about God obtained from creation in unrighteousness. And because of that, the wrath of God rests upon all men. Perhaps the ultimate conclusion of the whole chapter is stated in verse 20 where Paul says, so that men are without excuse. Now when some people hear that message preached, they react by saying, well, yeah, but uh, that doesn't include me. I mean, I'm different. I'm not like the rest. I'm righteous. For approaching 30 years, I have talked to people all over the country and in various parts of the world for that matter about their relationship to Jesus Christ. And one of the things that I have discovered, lo, those many years, is that virtually everybody thinks that they have righteousness, at least to some degree, and that somehow that righteousness is going to stand them in good stead when they stand before God. I must have talked to hundreds and perhaps several thousand over the years, And one of the great things I've learned is that virtually everybody thinks they've got some crack at heaven because they have some degree of righteousness. I remember talking with a fellow once, years ago now, and he felt that there were only two sins, murder and adultery. And as I was talking to him, I got the distinct impression that the only reason he had reduced the whole list down to those two is because those were the only two he hadn't committed. But you see, that is precisely what we do. We concoct some method for figuring out that we have some degree of righteousness. The most common method I have found is for people to compare themselves with somebody else and thus conclude that they are righteous because they are better or more righteous than somebody else they know. Now, what about these righteous people? What would Paul say about them as they stand before God? Was he a bit impulsive and too hasty in concluding that all men are without excuse before God? Well, the answer to that question is what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2. Will you turn with me in your Bibles as we look at Romans chapter 2, beginning at verse one. Paul says, therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impotent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. 
But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things contained in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law unto themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. And the day in which God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. In a sense, Romans chapter 1 speaks about the fact that all men are unrighteous. Romans chapter 2 addresses a smaller class of self-righteous men. Notice Paul says in verse 1, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. Now in chapter 1, he was just talking about out-and-out, clear-cut sinners. But when he gets to chapter 2, verse 1, He's talking about a man who judges other people. But he says that that self-righteous man who feels that he is so righteous that he could judge another is himself inexcusable. Now, how is it that someone who judges somebody else is inexcusable? Well, he says in verse 1, you are inexcusable you who judge another, for, which is going to explain that now, in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. Well, I'm not exactly sure I understand. How is it that just because I judge somebody else, I am condemning myself? Well, he explains that. For, you who judge, practice the same things. So, what Paul is telling us in this passage is, that even the self-righteous man who looks down his long nose at everybody else and judges them is going to end up judged because they practice the same things they themselves accuse others of doing. Have you ever noticed that? Isn't it true? You just listen to what people condemn in others and lo and behold, it is usually what they themselves do. It's almost an axiom of life. One pastor and preacher more eloquent than myself said it like this. The meekest old grandmother who ever spoke a sharp word against a tyrant or a despot in high or low places has been guilty of being dictatorial and arrogant at some moment in life or having the longing for domination. No individual has ever criticized another for lying without having something or other, some time or another, been guilty of shading the truth. Isn't that true? Even little meek grandmothers. But the point is that they are going to be without excuse. Now, what follows in the rest of this passage? is that Paul begins to explain that if you understood the nature of the judgment of God, then you would know that even the self-righteous are going to be without excuse. For example, look at verse 2. But we know the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. Now let me pause here for just a second. All verse 1 is doing is saying that self-righteous people, that is, those who think they are better than somebody else, are going to be found inexcusable. Beginning at verse 2 and going all the way down through verse 16, 
what he really does is discusses the standards by which God is going to judge. I have seen this passage divided up in several different ways all around the theme of the standards of judgment. But as I understand the passage, there are three standards of judgment given in it. The first is stated very clearly in verse 2. The judgment of God is according to truth. And that goes through verse 5. The second is in verse 6 and goes down through verse 11. And the third is in verses 12 to 16. So what we're going to do for the rest of this passage is look at three standards of judgment. And when we spell all this out, then we'll come back and see that self-righteous people are going to be inexcusable before God. So let's discuss these three standards of judgment. The first is that it is according to truth. Now the word truth means reality. What Paul is saying in this passage is God's judgment is going to be based on like it really is. It's not going to be based on appearance. It's going to be based on reality. Now the word truth in this verse is different than the truth spoken of in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1 verse 18 he spoke about truth being revealed about God. Now he's talking about a different kind of truth. I think the word reality better gets at what he's telling us in verse 2. So the man who judges other people and who re in reality practices what he is condemning is going to be without excuse because judgment is going to be based on reality. Not what you think or hope, not on your pedigree or performance, not on your past, but on what you really are. Sort of like what happens when you test gold. The test itself doesn't ask, where did you come from? Uh, who do you belong to? What strings can you pull? The test just determines what is this metal made of? Well, in a similar fashion, in the day in which we stand before God, the judgment will be based on reality. You won't be able to pull any strings or say, I know somebody, or not all the evidence be present. It's going to be based on reality. Now, based on that, he says, verse 3, And do you think this, O man, you who judge those that practice such things and do the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? You see, if it's based on reality, do you think when you judge somebody else and you're guilty of the same thing, that you are possibly going to be able to escape? And of course the answer is no. But you see, this person thinks that he will escape. That's the whole point. The very type person talked about in this passage is the very type person that thinks he's going to make it. The kind of person I talked about at the beginning. I've talked to dozens and scores and hundreds of them, maybe thousands. You know, I, I got a little crack at it. I think that's the very thing they do think. I think I'm going to make it. And what Paul is saying is, you don't understand how God's going to judge people. If you understood that, you'd know you're going to be inexcusable. But they not only uh, think they are going to escape, they don't repent. He says in verse 4, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads to repentance? You see, you're trucking along in your sin and self-righteousness thinking, I'll make it. But what you don't understand is that God in his goodness is being patient and he's being very long-suffering uh, to give you time to repent. So the very fact that you've got air to breathe and life to live is an indication that God is being good to you and he's giving you this life and he's giving you this time so that you will turn to him. But these self-righteous people don't understand all that and they just keep trucking. So he says, but in accordance with your hardness and your impotent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So judgment is according to reality. You will not escape 
And if you don't repent and turn to the Lord, then what you're doing is storing up wrath. Now, as you can see, this is uh, very similar to what we saw in chapter 1, except there are differences. In chapter 1, it says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And as we saw, that wrath was in this present life, and it was that God gave you over to sin. The wrath in this passage is different, clearly different. For it is not the wrath that happens now, it's a future wrath. So he says uh, that you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath. Now we got a problem. Most people who come to this passage and find the word wrath and find that it's future wrath conclude that this is wrath at the judgment of God. Some years ago, a professor challenged me to find in the New Testament a clear-cut reference to an eternal wrath. And I sat down and looked up all the references to wrath in the New Testament, and I concluded that he had a legitimate point. I'm not sure that you can find anywhere in the New Testament a reference that is a clear-cut indication that, there will, that God's wrath is that which he pours out in eternity. Say, for example, at the great white throne judgment. What you can find very clearly is this. There is a present wrath on those who've not trusted Jesus Christ, which I think Romans 1 is talking about. There is a wrath to come, which is what Romans 2 is talking about. That's indicated, for example, in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Furthermore, the book of Revelation calls the tribulation period the wrath of God, scattered throughout, but if you want a handy reference, it's Re Revelation chapter 6. So that I have concluded that there are two kinds of wrath in the Bible. There is a present wrath on those who haven't trusted Christ, and there's a future wrath that's to be in the tribulation period, where that period itself is called the day of God's wrath. That forces me to conclude that the day of wrath in this passage is the day of the tribulation period. Now those uh, studious uh, Bible students hearing that are going to say, but now wait a minute. That, the people in this passage aren't all going to be here during the tribulation period. So how can you say they are treasuring up for themselves wrath against the day of wrath and that that's the tribulation period when the tribulation period may be many years off and they may be dead and not experience the wrath when they get here. And the answer is that there is a concept in the Scripture of storing up and treasuring up wrath and that it rolls on from one generation to another and finally it is the tribulation period that's going to experience it. For example, in the book of Genesis, God said to Abraham, I'm going to give you the land, but you can't have it yet because the cup of the Ammonites is not yet full. We're going to have to wait 400 years and generation after generation is going to pile up sin and finally the cup is going to be full and I'm going to pronounce judgment on them and that's going to be that I'm going to give you the land. Then the children of Israel are going to be able to go in and take the land. Now, that's not just an isolated reference in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis. It's taught elsewhere in the Scripture. For example, turn with me for just a moment to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. And look at verse 49. Luke chapter 11 verse 49 says, Therefore the wisdom of God also says, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets which were shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation. Now that's an incredible statement falling from the lips of the Lord himself. But he's saying in verse 50, the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world will be required of this generation. 
So I think that's what Romans chapter 2 is talking about. That is, these self-righteous people, one generation right after another, pile up sin and it gets worse and worse and worse. They're all treasuring up wrath against the day of wrath. So, what he is saying is that uh, if you're self-righteous, you don't understand that the judgment of God is according to reality and you're not going to escape. For that matter, neither is the whole world because the wrath of God is going to come on the whole world during the tribulation period. That pastor I mentioned a moment ago who is more eloquent than I put it like this. He called these people misers of wrath and he said, you are taking the germs of death into your own throat. Turn ye, why will you die? You are cutting down the tree that has sheltered you and it must fall upon you. Turn ye, for why will you die? You are weaving the rope that must hang you. Turn ye, why will you die? You are lighting the fire of your own doom. Turn ye, why will you die? You are sharpening the sword that must pierce you. Turn ye, why will you die? You are forging the chain that must forever bind you. Turn ye, why will you die? You are digging beneath the foundation of your own home and house, and the edifice must crash upon you. Turn ye from your evil ways, saith the Lord, for why will you die? An eloquent expression of the fact that we are misers of wrath which will come out upon the whole world. We're storing it up. We experience it now. The world will experience it later. But the point is that judgment is according to reality. There is more. He says in verse 6, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Now, if I can get technical for just a second, grammatically, verse 6 is connected to verse 5, but in that in verse 6, he introduces the second standard of judgment. I'm going to divide the passage at this point and say that in verses 6 to 11, he's giving us the second standard of judgment, which is that judgment is according to works. Actually, verse 6 is a quotation from Proverbs chapter 24, verse 12. That proverb is quoted several places throughout the Scripture. This is one case in point. The simple truth is that judgment is according to reality and judgment is according to works. Now that much seems to be pretty clear. Verse 2 says judgment is according to truth, meaning reality, and verse 6 says judgment is according to works or deeds. That's very, very simple and very, very clear. Well, let me tell you, it gets real interesting real fast. Read verse 7. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality. Does that verse bother you? If you know anything at all about the book of Romans or the New Testament or know the Lord or understand that salvation is solely apart from works and solely by God's grace through faith, that verse ought to give you fits. I mean, it sounds for all the world like what that verse is saying is that it, you're given eternal life provided you have patient continuance in good works and you seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Does that not sound like salvation by works to you? Does to me. Whatever is he saying? Now fasten your seatbelts. What he's saying is, you're going to be judged by your works. The subject of this passage is not justification. The subject of this passage is judgment. And the point of this verse is, you're going to be judged by your works. You say, that didn't help me a bit. Makes it a little worse. How do you explain the verse? Well, let's see if we can unravel this. Let me suggest that there are three things being discussed here. 
First is the patient continuance in good works. That's number one. Secondly, there is the seeking of, how does he say it? Glory, honor, and immortality. And thirdly, there is the result of all that, which is eternal life. Matter of fact, in the Greek text, eternal life comes at the end of the sentence. makes it even a little clearer. Number one, there is the patient continuing in good works. Secondly, there is the seeking of glory, honor, and immortality. And thirdly, I get, re- I get eternal life. Is that what the verse is saying? I do believe I did it again. I put them to sleep. Is that what the verse is saying? That's what the verse is saying. Now let's unravel it. What's he teaching? The same man that wrote this verse said this, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto what? Good works. According to Paul, who's to do good works? Who's to continue in good works? Believers, people who have been given the gift of eternal life. He well knew that salvation wasn't by works. He said it over and over again, not only in Ephesians, but also in Romans and in several other books he penned. So I believe that Romans 2.7 is talking about believers. Judgment as a principle is going to be based on works and believers are going to be judged by their works. So those who by patient, by the way, the Greek word patient in verse 7 is literally endure. Those who endure in good works and who seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Now, what does that mean? What is glory, honor, and immortality? Now, let me get technical for just a second. Uh, One of the great scholarly, current works on Romans is by a scholar named Cranfield. Now, that doesn't mean a thing to you, but... Some hearing this will know whereof I speak. He has written a two-volume set on Romans, and it is one of the most scholarly things done in recent years. He's one of the leading authorities on the book of Romans. Here's what he says about glory, honor, and immortality. These words denote the eschatological gifts of God already firmly associated in Jewish thought with the resurrection life of the blessed. Did you get it? You want me to read it again? Some of you are still shaking your head no. Let me explain. Glory, honor, and immortality is what we're going to get later in the kingdom when the Lord comes back. Now, if you didn't understand the scholar, put your finger in the book of Romans and turn to 1 Peter, and let me show it to you in the Scripture. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter talks about this. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. Well, let's start at verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, all of the world Peter is saying is that if you have faith and you are trusting the Lord through trials, then, he says, you're going to find glory, which is the word praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of of Jesus Christ. He's going to say, well done, thy good and faithful servant. So all in the world, Romans 2, 7 is saying is, those who endure in good works and who are seeking glory, praise, and immortality are going to be given eternal life. Uh Uh-oh. That's our problem. Right? Question. Is eternal life in Romans 2, 7 a present possession or a future acquisition? Well, it's obviously a future acquisition. 
if you're going to endure in good works, seeking glory, honor, and immortality so that you get that in the future, it's not something you have now. This is not the only place in the New Testament where eternal life is a future acquisition and not a present possession. If you will recall, when we went through the book of Galatians, I pointed out that there is a sense in the Bible in which if you've trusted Jesus Christ, you have eternal life right now. There is also a sense in which eternal life is something you get later. Titus 1, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot promise, a lie promised before the world began. That's future. Galatians chapter 6, if we sow to the Spirit, we will reap everlasting life. You might also recall that I pointed out that when eternal life is a future acquisition, then it is no doubt referring to rewards that I get in the kingdom, that I'm going to have an abundant entrance into the kingdom of God, an eternal kind of life, a crown of life, if you will. So I think all Romans 2, 7 is saying is this. If you have are continuing in good works, which obviously means he's referring to a believer, and you are seeking glory, honor, and immortality, you're going to be given eternal life. Let me illustrate. I've illustrated this before by suggesting that it's like physical life. Physical life was a gift. You did absolutely nothing to earn your physical life. You were just born. But now what you've done with it since is a result of a great deal of effort. In that sense, it's a reward. And if you work, then life can be full of joy, it can be abundant, or it can be barren, and you can be unfruitful. But you still got the basic gift of life. So I think eternal life is a gift, and I think you can work at your spiritual life and be abundant and fruitful and be given what is called the crown of life or eternal life or you can be barren and unfruitful, as I said a minute ago. So, I think Romans 2.7 is simply talking about the fact that judgment is according to works, and believers are going to be judged based on their works. Verse 8 says, But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of men, man, who does evil to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I think now he's talking about judgment on unbelievers. As a matter of fact, in verse 8, the little phrase, do not obey the truth, the gospel is called the truth in the scripture. And in chapter 1, uh, he talked about, well, look at chapter 1, verse 5. He says um, something about the obedience to the faith. Meaning that you have to obey the command to believe. Well, these people did not obey the command to believe in Jesus Christ. So, he says, they were self-seeking. Boy, that doesn't describe the human nature. Nothing does. We're all self-centered, self-seeking, self-serving, and selfish by nature. And unsaved people who are dominated by that nature and do not obey the truth, obey unrighteousness. That is, they live ungodly, unrighteous lives. So, they're going to be judged by their works, which is the point of this passage, and as a result, they're going to get indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish. Four words describe what they're going to get. The first two are linked together by the word and, and the second two are linked together by the word and. So these are two sets of two words. The first two look at what God is going to do, indignation and wrath. And the second two look at what man is going to experience. He is going to experience tribulation and anguish. I believe uh, that this is a reference to the tribulation period mentioned originally back up in verse 5, the day of wrath. And it's the same idea, again, that they're going to be judged based on their works and the wrath of God is going to be poured out on 
the generation that finally fills up the cup. He says, on every soul of man that does evil, of the Jew first, and also of the Greek. But now, God's going to be impartial, and that's the whole point he's making at the end. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For, he says in verse 11, there is no partiality with God. God is going to be impartial in this judgment based on works. God is going to be impartial. So, if, you were, if you've obeyed the truth and are doing good works, he's going to reward you based on your works. If you've disobeyed the truth and have lived an unrighteous, ungodly life, he's going to reward you based on your works. And that's going to be to the Jew first and also to the Greek. God is going to be totally impartial. It's going to be based on what you've done with your life. Many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the Greek symbol for justice. There is a lady who is blindfolded, and she is holding a scale in one hand and a sword in the other. The fact that she has on blinders means that she is not respecter of persons. She's not considering the individual people that are before her. The scale indicates that it will be based on an absolute standard of what is right and wrong and fair and just. And the sword means that the judgment will fall on all who do not measure up regardless of who they are. That's the perfect picture of an impartiality in judgment. And that is precisely what Paul is teaching here. It's going to be based on works. Every human being is ultimately going to stand before God and give an account of his life. And his works will be judged. That goes for believers and unbelievers as well. Now, there's a third standard of judgment. It's going to be according to reality. You're not going to blow smoke in God's face, if you'll let me put it in the vernacular. It's going to be based on what you've done with your life. But there's a third standard. Beginning in verse 12, he says, For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. Now, expositors come to this and say, this passage is teaching you will be judged based on the amount of light that you have. I agree with that. That's clearly what he's saying, especially in verse 12. If you were judged without the law, if you were without the law, you'll be judged without the law. If you're with the law, you'll be judged with the law. But as you read his explanation, it seems to me that he's saying a little more than you'll be judged just based on the light that you have. He is saying you will be based you will be judged based on the light that you have about the law. And furthermore, everybody has some light even concerning the law. Now this is an interesting little twist, but it seems to me that is precisely what the Apostle Paul is teaching. For example, he says, verse 13, for not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. All right, first of all, let's take the case of the Jews. They have the law. Well, is it just possessing the law that gives you right standing before God? Why, absolutely not. Is it hearing the law that will stand you in good stead before God? Oh, no. But it's the doers of the law. Now what he doesn't say here, but he develops later in chapter 3, is that nobody does the law. So what he's saying is, those that have had the law, they're going to be judged by the law. You know what's going to happen? They're going to be judged, because they didn't keep it. Now let's discuss the Gentiles, verse 14. For when the Gentiles who did not have the law, by nature do the things contained in the law. These, although not having the law, are a law unto themselves. Hmm. He is saying that the Gentiles, 
don't have the law. Yet at the same time, they just intuitively, by nature, do the things contained in the law. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, uh, he says in verse 15, who show the work of the law written in their heart. Now, it is not the law that is in their heart. It is the work of the law that is written in their heart. You see, as far as the Jewish concern, God wrote the law in stone. But the Gentiles who did not have the law of Moses, which was in stone, do by nature the works of the law. Now what I think Paul is talking about is this. People that don't even know about the Word of God, people that don't know about the law of Moses, agree that you ought not kill, that you ought not commit adultery, and that you ought not steal. All rational men everywhere agree that that's the way we ought to live with one another. So what Paul is arguing is there, there, there's a sense in which the work of the law is written on the heart of every man. There's just this innate sense that you have a sense that there's a rightness and a wrongness in the world and that killing people and adultery and, th and stealing are wrong. Now that's what he's arguing. Now the problem is that um, hearts don't make good writing tablets. Stone makes a lot better writing tablet. If you write it in stone, it doesn't change. If you write it in a heart, it's fleshly and flabby, and uh, it gets blurred. And so that's the problem. Now, some people actually pervert that which man knows. But Paul is developing here the fact that it's by nature in man to know there's a moral oughtness in the universe. So what he says in verse 15 is that this, the fact that they do this kind of thing shows that the law is written in their hearts. Their conscience also bears witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing one another. Now instead of going through all these phrases and trying to sort it all out, let me just point out that there's the heart, there's the conscience, and there's the thoughts. So that he says it's written in their hearts and their inner being, they just intuitively know, they innately know that there's this moral oughtness in the universe. And so he says their conscience bears witness with this law. Man has a conscience. Now, of course, he can step on the conscience. He cannot listen to his conscience, but he has one. And the last phrase has to do with their thoughts, and there are two possible interpretations. One is that these are the reasonings and thoughts going on from one man to another, their conversation. Or it's the internal thoughts of a man debating with himself. But either way, those thoughts, whether it's words, back up in verse 1, or uh, their own inner thoughts, those thoughts either condemn or condone what they do, all of which points to the fact that they all have some kind of oughtness about the law. One commentator said, the heart is a statute book, the conscience is a witness, the reflections are the prosecutors or the advocates, and God is the judge. But in the context of Romans chapter 2, what Paul is saying is simply this, the Gentiles do by nature what's in the law and though they don't have the law and they're not going to be judged by it, they're going to be judged by the light that they have and everybody has some light of the law. And so he concludes by saying, God's going to judge in the day when he will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, which is in accordance with the gospel that I preach. Now, a lot in this passage. Whole books could be written on what is here. But the sum is basically this. He starts out in verse 1 talking about self-righteous people. And what he is saying is self-righteous individuals who judge others will not escape judgment or be found inexcusable 
because judgment will be according to reality, it'll be according to works, and it'll be according to the light that people have of the law, and they all have some knowledge of the law. Now, if all that sounds complicating and confusing, let me see if I can unravel it by spelling it out in ABC fashion. It all boils down to this, three things. Number one, there is an absolute standard for judgment. The law of God. That standard never varies. It is actually God himself. God is holy and righteous. Secondly, the basis of judgment will be reality, your works, and your knowledge of the law of God. Now you put all that together and the third point is, the conclusion is, no one is going to escape the judgment of God. And no one is going to have an excuse before the judgment of God. I think it's very instructive that in 120 he says they are without excuse and he starts chapter 2 saying you are inexcusable when you understand the principles of judgment we all, we all fall short. What is not stated in this passage but implied is that everybody breaks the law. He develops that thought later We'll get to it eventually as we're moving through Romans. But the point is that we all break the law and therefore we all fall short of the judgment of God. Now let me conclude by suggesting two things. Sounds pretty hopeless, doesn't it? Any hope? Well, he doesn't talk a great deal about it in this passage, but it is here. I slipped over it real fast. But let me just go back and uh, point out that in verse 4 he says that the goodness of God is supposed to lead to repentance. The word repent simply means to change your mind. Actually, the Bible teaches that salvation is by faith, though it indicates that we should repent. The truth of the matter is it's virtually impossible to exercise faith without changing your mind about something. So that if you change your mind about your sin and instead of taking an attitude toward it that says it's not my problem, it's somebody else's, and you change your mind to yes, it is my problem, you've repented. You see the seriousness of sin. And instead of seeing that Jesus Christ was not just a, not just a great teacher but was God in the flesh who died and arose, You've changed your mind about Jesus Christ. And when you come to understand that salvation is not by works, but it's solely and only by dependence upon Jesus Christ, you've changed your mind about faith. Now God has left you alive. He has been patient with you to give you a chance to turn to him in faith. So yes, the overall thrust of the passage sounds pretty hopeless, but that's only if you leave out Jesus Christ. Apart from him, it is hopeless. But with him, there is uh, endless hope. But one other observation. I don't want to leave the passage <coughs> without telling you exactly what the passage is saying. What this passage is teaching is there's a judgment of God coming. And it is most assuredly not based on how you did as compared to how somebody else did. You see, the tendency of the human heart is to say, well, I'm not as bad as... That's exactly where Paul started. You are inexcusable, O oh man, you who judge another because you end up turning around doing the same thing you would judge everybody else for. The point of this passage is the judgment of God is not based on how you did as compared to somebody else. It's based on truth. 
and reality and God's law. Judged by that, all of us come short. There is an absolute standard for the judgment of God. Let me illustrate. Two boys in school took an exam, a math exam, and both of them missed the same question. Simple question. What is eight times seven? The teacher marked both of their answers wrong, and when one young fellow found out about it, he got very upset. He looked at his buddy's paper, and he took him and both papers and went to see the teacher. And he said, I object. You did not give me any credit for this answer. I said that 8 times 7 was 46. And he said 8 times 7 was 44. Now, I did better than he did, but you gave us both a zero. <laughs> the teacher was totally unimpressed. You see, you may be impressed that you've done a little better than somebody else. But the simple reality is, if you understand the judgment of God, we all fall short. And our only hope is to admit that and turn to the only hope we have in life, Jesus Christ. If you haven't done that, I'd urge you to do it. I'd urge you to do it as quickly as possible. Let's pray. Our Father, a passage like this scares us to death. To think that our lives will be an open book before you makes us realize that none of us can stand in your presence justified. That we've all come short of your glory. But Father, studying a passage like this makes us also even more grateful for your Son, and his death on our behalf. We thank you that we can stand righteous before you because your Son has paid for all of our sins and shortcomings. Thank you, our Father, that you've saved us by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.